Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome. Like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome. Like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. All right. Hi there. Yeah, I bet you're wondering where the banter is before all the podcast starts. Well, this is, again, one of our very special, hopefully monthly, coming to you Pack Filler Interviews shows. I am Pat Bulger. I'm here in the studio. I'm holding down the fort all by myself. But I do want to say that the Pack Filler Interviews are very special one-off segments that I'm trying to send to you guys on, a, as I said earlier, on a monthly basis, just to provide a little bit of perspective and something beyond the usual banter that you might hear right here within the studios. This episode of the Pack Filler Interviews is brought to you by an event. 24 Hours of Riverside is coming up Memorial Day weekend in Spokane, Washington. If you are within the region, if you are within a heck, if you want to do some traveling and come experience the celebration of the mountain bike, the 24 Hours of Riverside is your event. Registration is open. Prices go up at the end of every month. So if you want to get some ideas about what's going on, it's the good old classic 24-hour mountain bike race format. Start at noon on Saturday. Gun goes off. Ride all the way through the night with your by yourself, two-person, up to 10-person teams. Great time camping, food provided, I think we're going to have a beer garden there. I think there's going to be a beer garden there. Get ready for that. 24hoursofriverside.com. 24hoursofriverside.com is where you can find out more information. Grab some friends or, hell, do it by yourself. Be a lunatic. Do it by yourself. Although nobody will be keeping track of your laps except the timing company. And you can just, like, do one lap at noon and then one lap at, like, 10 o'clock the next morning and just drink beer. I'm not saying that's what you should do, but check it out. Two four hours of Riverside, twenty four hours of Riverside dot com. That's right, the theme is playing, which means it must be time for another episode of the Pack Filler Podcast. However, this is one of the Pack Filler interviews. Monthly segments coming to you to provide you a little bit beyond the usual banter of four to five people all talking at the same time about a bike race or opinions 
for the long live nature of rim brakes. I am Pat Bulger in the Pack Filler Studios. It is the day after the Ronde van Flanderen or the Tour of Flanders. Oh my God, what a race that was. If you were able to catch it, you know what happened. You know how beautiful of a bike race that was all the way until the closing inches of that bike race. How exciting was that? Um, the favorites never cease to amaze me at the sheer ability and, and gifts and talents and, and just tactical brilliance, especially by the one and only Matthew Vanderpool. Sorry, spoiler alert. If you haven't seen it yet, I just ruined the race for you, but you're going to love it regardless. Today on the show, we thought we would grab an opportunity to dissect it a little bit further. Not necessarily, you know, every little who did what and who said what, but to get some perspective by somebody who's actually been in the trenches there, who's been in the peloton, who has raced the Tour of Flanders, who has raced Perry roubaix who has raced the Tour de France. What a great perspective. The guy who's been on the show before, he's been in the Captain America kit himself of the U.S. professional champion. You know him as U.S. Postal Rider and WordPerfect Rider, the one and only Marty Jemison. I got a chance to catch up with Marty. Marty watched the race. Marty has been to the race, and Marty has a perspective unlike a lot of other riders in that he has been there. He knows what it's like to ride those cobbles at full speed and with the best in the world. So without further ado, let's get to a very special Pack Filler interview with Marty Jemison. All right, everybody, uh, I'm coming back to the show, it's been a long time since I've had him on, but former U.S. Pro Champion, member of some of the big teams from all time, U.S. Postal and Word Perfect. Um, you know him as, as the one and only Marty Jemison. How are you, man? Good, good, Patrick. Thanks. Uh, glad to be here. Yeah, we well, we had a couple little snafus on in terms of, I always mess up time changes, and I have never been good at like doing the math. It's simple math, but I can never do it, and I think I told you a time and... Well, anyway, but uh, this is this is better. We all got time here to do this. So, and we've had a little time to digest the fact that this little bike race happened yesterday, called the Tour of Flanders. Um, so, just a little bike race. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> right. You know, just a little get together of friends. Um, yeah. So, uh, bef- you know, and and you were able to watch it. I, from what I understand, you were you did some some kind of live podcast commentary of it. I did. Yeah, I did. Yes, awesome. uh, yesterday. Well, we didn't do it live. We did. We followed up. 20 minutes or after the race was over. So, yeah. So while the emotions are still high. <laughs> um, well, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, and the coffee is wearing off. So before we get into the details, so what kind of, what words would come to your mind at, on a reflection of, of the race and, and if there were any kind of post-traumatic stress moments for you, having been somebody who's participated in this race yourself? You know, you, you just mentioned PTSD. I, I honestly, that you're, you're touching on something there. But, you know, if, if there was some PTSD with, you know, going back and thinking about what, what, how those races affected me, what really happened yesterday was excitement and, and more of my, you know, coming out as a fan, yeah. you know, overrode and subdued whatever PTSD I might have had from years, years before. Do you ever get the feeling watching some of these races? Before I hit record here, you were telling me that you you've kind of become involved, but you're not really you know as uh, watching all the races and getting so far in depth into it and things like that. Do, is there something in your, I, for example, if I were to go and watch a bike race, even at my level today, something in my in my body would be like, going, oh, I need to be out there. I need to do this again. Is 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 that there or is it long gone? 
It's not long gone. There's a little bit of that there. And I think, you know, I mean, after my pro career, I mean, I, you know, um, there's, you know, you get spun out of this world and you're in another, you get spun out of this bubble. So you're lost. Yeah. So I was lost and I picked up the pieces and focused my life on doing something which was still with the bike, doing my bike tours. But, you know, running a small business, I was so focused and busy with just keeping that going that I don't know. I didn't have the time personally to, you know, to lock down and watch races. Um, So that was difficult. And like, you know, and I shared with you before we went live, like I am, you know, and I I don't even know why, but I'm late to the game of purchasing a VPN and having that, you know, having that freedom to watch bike races live. And then before we went live, you and I just mentioned that, you know, now we have the technology, we can rewind and and go forward. So we can watch it live, we can rewind. That's all new to me. And you know what though, but watching yesterday was amazing. Not to gush anything, but I remember watching the races you were participating in and they were, I mean, this is how far we've come. Uh, the, the, to watch the races back then, it was a, a weekend segment, maybe a tw- you know, 20, 25 minutes at a time with the John Tesh soundtrack and Phil Liggett voicing over the top. Yeah. And we barely got to see anything. Everything else was red. So I, I don't mean to sound like too much of an old man, but boy, we got it. We got it great nowadays. Yeah. And, it, it, and, and to your point, and like you, you got to see segments of bike racing yeah. and you were still a fan. And then as a racer and a participant, you know, and then we just knew that there's so much racing that you're missing. You're missing so much. You know, one thing that comes to mind is, you know, like the first 50K of Paris-Roubaix is some of the hardest racing of your life really? until that, until a break gets away. I mean, it's war. And like the viewing fan back in the States never, ever was able to see something like that. And so, you know, like even like I didn't get up too early yesterday. I saw the last, you know, 65K. But, you know, there's 100K of racing. And I I don't even know what happened in that first 100K. And I feel bad about that because there are guys that are laying on the line for, you know, hours before, you know, before I even tuned in. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And like I was in the same boat with you, especially when when. I logged in pretty close to the same time you did, and to see bef- again before I hit record. I, sh- I should just hit record when the call starts, but um, but um, to see, yeah, yeah, exactly. To see those that moment of that attack with with Pogachar, uh, you were saying before we went live the fact that what was going on at that moment. I know that the, a break was being caught right at the base of that climb, but what yep. a what a monumental moment that was and to know that there was so much going on prior to that yeah and, and you know and i i tried to do rewind and look a little bit a little bit bit, bit of this morning but I, I didn't get enough time i didn't get the time i wanted to i really want to go back and scrutinize that maybe that 10k before the choir map to see what was going on see who's in the break and then really see you know the, that energy and that move by pojakar you know, starting up the Quermont. That, that was, it was, it was insane. Do you, are you able to, while watching the race, kind of decipher and, and interpret and see and critique, if you will, any type of mistakes that you see being made from just your experience of doing some things? I know that they talk constantly about experience being one of the keys to true success here. And um, Tade probably might have fallen victim to some of those situations. Um, absolutely. But I think, I didn't think he fell victim. I think he knew exactly what he was doing going into it. 
So I think he's he's that strong. Like there's no question, you know, we perhaps we can say he was the strongest in the race. Yeah. But honestly, what I saw, even with that move up the Quermount, he's 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 it was unnecessary as a smart tactician to put that much power into that climb. I think he was showing the world that he's the strongest. But I don't honest to God, I don't think he had intentions of winning it. I don't. Wow. I think it's one of his first cobbled classics, and I think he's there for the experience. He's there to show the world how strong he is, and you know he's racing. I think he was racing professionally, but also for fun. Without without kind of that same pressure, he might have to truly win it. Um, you know, Vanderpool, he was he was a superior tactician. Yeah, yeah, and and that that finish moment I think will be talked about on multiple shows for multiple weeks talking about was the the catch intentional from somebody like Matthew Vanderpool um in order to confuse things and make things a little bit more difficult in a two-up sprint. Um he was in control, yeah. right? He I mean Matthew Vanderpool brought that thing to a track stand and he looked behind him enough times to know Madois was there and the fourth guy that he knew what was happening. So he timed that perfectly. He timed it perfectly because he won, but he also, <laughs> he was in control. He was, he was cool, calm and collected. I, I don't think there's anything to discuss. The guy, the guy knew what he was doing. They were, I saw, I read a stat this morning saying that the, um, Vanderpool and and Pogacar were going 20 miles an hour, maybe 20.1 mile and 21 miles an hour. And the, the when they they were caught, the chasers were doing 29 miles an hour. So to sure. accelerate that fast in such a short yep. amount of time, just as you say, he had complete confidence in that moment. Complete confidence, but you know, I think you're hinting on something there that that differential of eight miles an hour, it's a lot. Yeah, yeah. You know, to go from to, to to go, you know, eight miles an hour to jump because they got caught and the difference was eight miles an hour. So I mean, t- yeah, I mean, Vanderpool had confidence, didn't he, that he could jump and accelerate? Um, but he did, you know, and, and you know, he could have started earlier because he was looking back enough, and you know, he's a pro; he knows what he's doing. Yeah. Do you see? Did you see any other potential options for uh, Tade Pogacar in in that situation? Obviously, we saw the massive amounts of frustration coming across the finish line, but um, either in, uh, going into this type of a of a moment, this final stretch with somebody you know is probably a far superior person when it comes to a sprint, what would what was running through your mind in terms of options for him then? Well, you know what? I wouldn't. I don't want to pretend to know more than him because <laughs> I, have my, I have my career. Yeah. I have my results. So pretty clearly, you know what I'm capable of or what I've done in my life. Um, Bojakar, he's he's superior. Yeah. So yeah. he's smarter. What he was doing is <laughs> it surpasses my intelligence. Like, like I don't know if I was, you know, like maybe because he didn't win, you could say he probably should have jumped earlier. He yeah. should have. He should have potentially jumped from further out and tried to win that way. But, you know, he's smart, and he might have known he would have come up short, so he did what he did. Sure, sure. That's fair. That's fair. I mean, you know, we can't – we could all water cool, uh, water cooler yeah. Monday morning quarterback here, I, but, you know. <laughs> you know, and I prefer not to do that. I can talk about what I did in my in my career. Sure. And, yeah, I don't want to water cool. I don't yeah. – you know, that's – you know, I like to be respectful of those of, – of, you know, these are the best, some of the best athletes in the world, yeah. and certainly best athletes in cycling. So, 
like to give them the respect respect of the professionalism that got them where they are. Yeah. So let's go from your perspective. If somebody who has raced these roads, um, talk to me about what it takes to perform or at least even kind of participate in a race of this magnitude with this type of a history and this type of a, of a just 20 climbs, for example. What's it like racing those roads, and what do you what did it take to be able to get there? Well, you know, I, I just recently spoke to a bunch of high school kids um, at a career career day. <laughs> and, okay. and you know, um, do you know, do you know the book outliers? I, I know um, of it. I have not read it. Yeah, so like there's, there's, there's a, there's a, there's a, there's a, they reference a quote or one of the quotes in the book is it's 10,000 hours to get, you know, to, to greatness in within almost anything, whether in the book they use hockey players or maybe you're, you're a guitar player, musician, or, you know, I think in that book, you know, it rang true to me so before I was on before I made it to the world stage it was it was more than 10,000 hours of of high focused high level sure. racing and training yeah right so you know to me a lot of the sport and a lot of what I did it's just it's mathematics you know it's day in day out time on the bike it's day in day out time on the bike and what was your distance and you want your distance to be increasing so you're increasing you know you're improving year after year day after day or day after day and year after year so it takes it takes a lot of that to get to the world stage. Um, one thing that comes to mind, and maybe maybe this and maybe it does answer your question, is I've brought groups of people to the Tour of Flanders, and they're just one of the comments is they're shocked by how quiet it is. Like really? moving around the car. So I get inside where all the cars are with my guests. They can't believe how quiet the athletes are, the soigneurs. I mean, there's activity going on. But there's always there's this kind of quiet before the storm. It's kind of, it's kind of strange. It's and and my guests are kind of surprised by that. But it's because you know maybe you don't want to waste any energy and you know it's kind of a you're transfixed on what's going to be coming up and and you're you're facing a big day. You're facing a very big day. Of course, the the average Joe such as myself look at this in such a romanticized view. Um, mm -hmm. as somebody who's kidding up, getting ready, approaching the start line, does it ever, do you ever stop and have it sink into your head? Holy shit. This is the tour of Flanders. This is, this is this. And if so, yeah. does that ever go away? Do you just, is it constantly that, that emotion and that type of a feeling? I mean, I think it's, I, I appreciated my time there and I had, I think I had a, a level of awareness of awareness all the time. And appreciation, you know, my life was a little bit different. Like, you know, I, I actually made it through college before I came became a professional athlete. Yeah. So, like, when I left college and went to race in in Europe for three years as an amateur, and then became a pro after that, like, my alternative life was, you know, a career path because of my degree. So, I think I I, I approached it differently. That it was a, maybe a period of time where I didn't know how long it was going to last. I just had a greater appreciation for being the athlete. And I didn't know how long that was going to last. And I think it actually helped me out. So, um, so yeah, I was aware. Um, but, you know, getting to all those different levels of, of where you are as an athlete, is, they're baby steps, right? So it's not like you just jump into this giant world. So sure. it's so gradual that, you know, you have to, you have to think outside the box of where you are. Um, otherwise you've had all these steps to get to that point. And all of those steps are important. Yeah. You know, hundreds of races 
hundreds and hundreds of races before you get to a pro race like the Tour of Flanders. Are there any snapshot moments that you were able to to recall the, the memories of the events of the day of the fans of the environment are there there's so many times in life where you go through these moments and you don't take that time to step back and go wow this is holy wow were there do you have moments like that that you were able to keep and, and hold on to and, and if so what were some of the special moments of doing that um there's so many there's so many really? right good um you know, I, I did have somebody over at my house this morning and I shared something. I did a project during COVID. Um, you can search it. It's on Coyote Tales. It's my name. And I did a three-minute segment that talked about a race that I won. And it was a, it's a three-minute segment, I believe. And it talks about a premonition I had going into that race. And the premonition proved to be true. It's pretty cool. Really? But, um, you know, I, I had a voice. I was getting ready, at, I was getting ready for that race. It was called Flesh Lachminet in northern France. And I just had a prem- I just had a voice in my head that it's louder than any voice I'd ever heard before. But it said, I wonder what the winner of the race is thinking right now. And then I heard an echo in my head or another voice that said, well, what if this is what the winner of the race is, is thinking right now? And, you know, it, put, it, ra- it raised the hair on my arms. And I was like, yeah. then I was distracted. I was actually rushed to to finish my preparation to get on the bike for the race i ended up winning the race but wow. it was pretty cool <laughs> wow okay I did, I, did a, I did a three minute segment on that and then you can search for it if you if you have interest coyote tales okay i yep. absolutely yep. i will um of all the classics that you were able to participate in um what were your favorites as a rider and and now even today what are your favorites as a spectator um, we, you know, this is maybe segueing off the, the question you just asked previously of sure. like moments within the races. And there are several, but one that comes to mind right now is, um, Classica San Sebastian. Yeah. So, um, I think I took a, I took like 19th or 20th one year, but like there was a segment before the Jascabel, before the last, uh, critical climb that I broke away with Miguel Indoran. Oh, so shit. the two of us, only the two of us swapping poles. And this is, this is a guy. I think he had already won four or five Tour de France's, like maybe his fifth Tour de France. And all of a sudden, I am with Miguel Indoran. We're swapping the poles 50-50. Like both of us had the same horsepower. I don't know how long we went. We probably went five or six kilometers. But, I mean, it's full, full gas. And then, you know, I was able to lead up the Jascabel, you know, in the top 10 or 20 guys. And it's just it's insanity. And I ended up finishing a top 20. Um, I think I have four or five top 20s in classics in my life. But that's not winning. So, I mean, if anything, I'm tasting, you know, the top 20 power and and, and, and pain. But to win is just something I can respect on a whole nother level. And to see that and to be uh, alongside somebody such as Miguel Indurain, to, to be in a race with uh, these guys like Matthew Vanderpool and Tade Pogacar and uh, Wout van Aert and riders such as that, there are these, there's this, this favorite delineation under their name, an asterisk uh-huh. next to their name. Um, what makes the difference between somebody like that and and the rest of so to speak of the of the peloton why are there there's such a level of of that that difference in terms of performance abilities I mean, you know I, we could 
speculating think, everything. Right. So I think there's a tiny, I think there's a very, very small margin or percentage of, you know, physical ability that's superior, but I think it's, it might even be smaller than it. it it's not huge. It's not huge, but or let me just jump to the other part of my thoughts are yeah. these guys have institutions behind them. So they ser- they really, really have more people, more connections and more sponsorship. They have empires behind them where other guys on the team are the serfs, you know, yeah. we're the serfs, we're the, we're the, you know, you know, we're working for them. And, and sometimes that's not so obvious, but I think it's more true than we, than we take, than we really know. And is that associated just almost by luck of the draw, by, by birth, by, you know, it's just, it's just to have, you know, I go back to the mathematics and I don't know if it's, you know, it makes, is, if, it, if it, you know, presents clarity to other people, but you know, we, you know, even back on when I was an amateur and then, and then I segued into spending time on the U S national team. If you throw all your results into a spreadsheet, right yeah. into a spreadsheet and you, you spit out a mathematical function, you can start ranking, you know, riders. So like, you know, I did over 900 days of racing in Europe alone and then another five or 600 in the United States. If you throw all of that, all of those numbers into a spreadsheet and you spit something out and you stack it against your five or six or seven teammates or whatever, you, you all kind of stack up, right? Sure. And then, so then you've got mathematical, you're, you have performance data of what you're capable of. And then if you add in, you know, um, your empire behind you. Like there are guys like I didn't really know even until maybe after my career, some people, some writers, they have, they have so much help, whether they had, you know, maybe they had deep financial pockets to help them out or connections, or they had fans or clubs that support them. I mean, truly have institutions supporting them. And then some of us have nobody. So I think that makes a big difference. And then, you know, but it's still a wonderful world. Yeah. Wow. I, I as you were saying that, I, I was immediately recalling uh, Matthew Vanderpool's uh, bloodline, <laughs> his father, yeah. his grandfather. Um, nothing to shake a you know to to be upset about. And and as you're right, if that's the yeah. chosen career path, there is it is all paved out before him. Yeah. It's paved out. Just, you know, there's so many so much support. Yeah. So many contacts, et cetera, et cetera. So what, in your opinion, does it take to win a monument at this, at this level and this intensity? A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. 
So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Some of the things we were just talking about. Sure. And then, yeah. And then so much more that we haven't talked about. You yeah. know, I mean, so much. Luck. I mean, almost to a certain degree. I mean, especially when we start talking about Roubaix. Right. And then, but, but luck, I mean, and even mentioning Roubaix, there are, there are those that have won it more than once. So, you know, there's luck, but then there's, then there's, you know, unbelievable talents in in those arenas. It's guys that, guys that can just superior, they're superior in that performance arena. Yeah. Like, you know, Flanders to Roubaix, like I'm better in, 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 in Flanders because I'm more comfortable on the, on the cobbled climbs. The speeds and, and and what goes on on the cobbles on the when they're flat, the speeds are higher. You've got heavier, stronger guys that can like bounce off of each other. It's there's more body contact, and that's 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 reserved for a different kind of athlete. So, different arenas. Are, can you compare the cobbles themselves? Are the are are Roubaix cobbles more rough and and difficult than than Flanders cobbles? There's abs- definitely a few sections that are much more rough. The Arnberg Forest is very, very rough. And then there's there's at least one or two more sections after Arnberg Forest, which are very, very rough, not as short, not as long. But Arnberg Forest, there's there's nothing like that in Flanders. I think all of the climbs in Flanders, they're cobbled climbs, but they're pretty symmetrical. Arnberg Forest is, you've got cobbles all different directions and you get bounced off the, you get bounced off your line, um, at times. And I, I just was just sitting here stopping and thinking about the equipment changes that, that you were competing on versus what we see now in terms of, um, you know, tire options in terms of, you know, tubeless options in terms of just how the bike is built. Ge- gearing, yeah. gearing. Oh my God! I couldn't imagine doing Paddenberg or any of these these climbs on the gearing that I grew up on. With you know your max, you had like a forty two, twenty three, twenty one. Yeah, twenty one was what you went with, or people laughed at you. Oh no, no twenty three, maybe twenty four. Yeah. Um. Yeah, you know, that's that's not that's not it because really? you know. Largely, the, the largely the entire peloton is on the same equipment. There's, there's each team will have slight different variations of exactly what they do have, but you're competing amongst each other. Those during that period of time, that period of time in the equipment of the era. Sure. So, do you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. I mean, you could throw, you could do, you could do, you could throw down you know a tour of flanders where everybody had to be on a fixie on the same gears right and that would be an event (laughs) so i mean we're all doing you know during my era we all had virtually the same kind of bikes so sure things have evolved and we're on different equipment or the riders today are on different equipment but you know what they're racing against each other it's it's there's to me there's less emphasis on the equipment more emphasis on the athletes and the athletes competing amongst themselves yeah but you have to admit the changes to to think about current for me to go out and ride some of these climbs in in the gearing that I raced on 
versus what I have, what the options are now is just, I keep thinking that you just come to a stop and tip over and then be like Jesper Skibby and have the car run over the top of you. Yeah. So you, well, so I mean, that car was in the way, but (laughs) some of those guys were running such a large gear, maybe low RPM that if they would have had higher cadence that maybe they wouldn't have had as many standstill stop and then hike the bike up the rest of the climb. Yeah. 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 So perhaps, perhaps. So tell me about the experiences of the environment of the fans. Um, the Roubaix and, and, uh, and Flanders are, are a, a day's trip between each other. You can, you can attend both. Um, right. but there are two completely different cultures in terms of, uh, cycling fanaticism. What would you, what would you say are the differences between the two and which do you prefer? Um, well, I mean, just the type of riding that I like, I prefer Flanders because of the, the cobble climbs. I'm, I'm, sure. I'm a large, I was a large rider, Yeah. but I'm a climber inside, inside of a large body. So <laughs> I have like climbing abilities inside of frame. My frame was too big. Um, my frame is closely matched to the guys that ride, ride Paris-Roubaix really? uh, or do well in Paris-Roubaix, but I don't do as well on the flats and certainly not the flat cobbles. Yeah. Um, so, I, I mean, I, I favor, you know, Flanders. Yeah. Um, what did you say, the culture being the, different? The, the fans, the, the, the history, the culture, the environment itself. I don't know if there's, I, you know, maybe I'm unaware of it, but I don't think really? there's that much difference. I mean, both are in northern France or Belgium, right? Yeah, yeah. Like it's northern France or Belgium. Maybe Tour of Flanders might get some more Dutch people coming down. Um, but those are lar- largely, large, largely those are Belgian fans and fans from, well, from England as well. People are coming, they're, they're descending on those events. So I think, the, I think the fans are pretty similar, to tell you the truth. Are, are there uh, as many drunk people as, as it looks I don't know, man. I'm racing, you know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So they're not getting in the way or throwing beer you know, in you or something. I, you know, I know, like, uh, um, what is it? The, not the uh, shoot. What oh, the the Mur de, the Mur de Grimmel, Yeah. Or the, the Mur de Gerasbergen. That that climb. You know, there's a bar on the climb, and you know there tends to be more fans right by the bar. So yeah, we know that, and maybe you see sloshing cups, but yeah. and you know, I lived in Belgium for a year. Beer is part of their culture, you know, sure. it's, um, so, but are they, you know, I don't know how much, you know, the Europe, most of the Europeans are very, they're not as crazy with their alcohol. It depends. It depends. Yeah. 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 Um, from your experience or as far as you can speculate, um, talk to me and we, you and I just talked at, at length about, about the equipment changes. Um, what other changes have you noticed in the sport since, since your, your days in the pro peloton? that have, that have been either for good or for bad? Um, you know, I, I think because there's limited sizes of carbon fiber frames, I think you see riders, you know, a lot of pros forcing themselves to fit a bike that may not be perfect for them. If, if you compare that back in the day where you had custom frame builders, um, I, and I also think, I think riders are forcing themselves. And I also think there's probably industry push pushing riders onto bike frames that are too small for themselves. And, you know, if you ask me why, why do I think that's happening? I think, I think a smaller carbon bike is a, is a stronger bike. I also think there's also, you know, it's lighter. So in the back of a lot of the riders minds, you know, they're, they're worried about weight. Um, I don't know, you know, maybe that pendulum has swung a little too far in that direction. Maybe that pendulum needs to come back a little bit. 
maybe guys need to be fit on bikes a little more appropriately, you know, appropriate for their bodies. But there's also some learning that needs to go on too. Like, um, let's see what happens. Yeah. Do you have an opinion on the equipment changes such as disc brakes and tubeless tires? I know we've got a guy who's regularly on the show that'll kill me if I don't ask you these questions. Um, uh, I stand with Chris Froome and his comments about disc brakes strongly. Really? Yeah. It almost, the, the opinion around this show tends to be that a lot of this stuff is being forced upon the consumer and forced upon the pro Peloton because it is new technology and people want to sell bikes. Yes. And so I'm not, you know, I, I don't represent any companies and they probably wouldn't like the way I feel about it. Sure. I stand with Chris Froome. I think rim brakes are amazing. Um, you know, yeah, you know, the life, you know, my life as a pro cyclist, like when you're traveling around the world with your bike in your bag, and this, this could be too a long winded, um, example, but you know, I was going to islands around the world, like on, in an island or like far away places and you pull your bike out of a bag and you got to put it together and you have to ride five or six hours right then. Yeah. And if you're not, then you're not staying on top of your fitness level. If you pull your bike out of the bag and you have a rotor that's not a rotor that's rubbing or a rotor that has to be bent, adjusted, or, or maybe you need fluid or these things take time to, you know, to adjust. And, you know, there's certainly a large percentage of bike riders who are also very, very adept bike mechanics. But traveling around the world, do I want the fluid? Do I want extra rotors? Do I want, like, I don't know, like, um, you know, I've had guests arrive in Puglia, Italy with DI2 electric shifting and in flight, in transit, you know, TSA pulled the bike out and all of a sudden his electric wire is broken and disconnected from from his derailleur. So some of those things, they, they destroy your, your ability to ride the bike that day. Like that day I need to ride five or six hours. All of a sudden you have to go to a bike shop and you may not have a bike shop for two or 300 miles away. So how did you phrase it? The industry pushing this technology on the riders. Yeah. Um, it is what it is, but I, I, you know, I think, you know, I think the simplicity and I think the importance for me was time on my bike. You know, like I'm the carpenter that wants that hammer for that same that same trustworthy tool day in, day out for, for year in, year out. Yeah. I don't get caught up in new technology that's finicky that takes more time to keep to keep, you know, functioning. Boy, you just you made about three quarters of the regular cast of this show very happy because <laughs> we're all you know it's it is the it is the the accessibility the not the I don't want to say simplicity because there are some elements of, of working on even older bikes that are difficult but uh, but you know, there's nothing more frustrating than a pulling your wheels out and having a bent rotor. There's nowhere I went in the world for more than fifteen or twenty years where I pulled my bike out of the bag and my, and my caliper brakes didn't work. Yeah. That never happened ever. Yeah. You know, or squeaky noises or, you know, um, rubbing. Um, yeah. So, but if you are, you know, I mean, I think it's sort of akin to, do you want a Ferrari as your daily driver, yeah. your trustworthy daily driver? And if it's your only car, right? Because, you know, maybe we think of a, a Ferrari, it's a wonderful vehicle, but 
it spends a lot of time, we think, or from what my knowledge, it needs to spend a lot of time with the mechanic. So yeah. well, with your vehicles with the mechanic, what are you what are you driving? So it's kind of, you know, if you live in a community where there's bike shops, really high-end bike shops all around you, you can go in and out of those bike shops to get your bike, you know, serviced. But as a bike racer and we're by, time on a bike is the most important thing and you're going all around the world, I think I want simplicity. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I perfect. Thank you. <laughs> so, um, from your from your years uh, as a pro, um, I, I asked you earlier about that that urge. Is there ever that urge when you attend a race? But tell me about life off the bike, and are there any things that you you miss from that those years and that that lifestyle? Um. First of all, I, I absolutely love the lifestyle. Um, it's the, it's the, it's a period of my life where I was happiest. I was the most content. I think I had you know even balance as well between time on the bike. You know, my job was done, and then time spent with those close to me. You know, family or people I was in love with. Um, yeah, so I miss it. I miss you know, and it it was amazing. You know, I did well enough to make enough money that during the that during that ten or fifteen years. You know, I, I had a great life. I was very, very fortunate. Were there after parties? My, I, I, I opened a beer last night after, you know, I didn't open it after the race because it was 10 a.m. Uh, and I can't do that. But uh, last night at dinner, I opened up a, a, a Belgian beer and had it. And my, I was going, oh, I wonder, you know, if, if Matthew's having a beer. Uh, my wife went, no. First of all, he's asleep. Second of all, he's got to get ready for the next race. So were they? What's that? Um, after parties, yeah. I remember like, so after the tour de France yeah, in Paris, I mean, there were, we had an after party and it's, it's not the, it's not the appropriate time to have an after party because you're so tired, <laughs> Yeah, but there is an after party. And I, you know, I was maybe up till two or three in the morning and then, you know, I was back home and or back to the hotel in bed it's, and some others might've continued. Um, but that's, it's probably the worst thing to do on your body because your immune system is so, is so wrecked. You're so exhausted, but you're also elated that you finished, you know, the Tour de France in Paris. The other time, and I think this one's maybe a little more appropriate to party is after the world championships. Okay. So that's at the end of the year and it's a one day race. So yeah, you're depleted because you did a one day race, but your reserves, you still have reserves. That's that's a good after party. You know, that's you know, if you want to see pros go to the world championships and just find the nightlife because you are going to find people cutting loose. And it's that's a big moving party with a lot of pros. And it's it's the first time that I may have interacted with a lot of these guys. That's a lot of fun. And it's just good, clean fun. Yeah, yeah. really. I, I don't know who it was, but I, we were in, I was in San Sebastian one year. Lauren Brochard won it, and in the middle of the, it was an Australian guy. I don't know, upset with his cell phone, and he just threw his cell phone into the ocean. <laughs> I mean, yeah, fun things happen. <laughs> oh, and some probably not not fit, you know, just the things, the the secrets that stay within the world, right? So, <laughs> yeah, but you know, good clean fun. Sure. So, as a person who who takes people over to these experiences and stuff like that. And I want to ask you about the tour company here shortly, but uh, if, if one were to go over and see the spring classics uh, to see Flanders, to see Roubaix, to see Amstel gold, um, what, 
what should you make sure always that's on your list to experience in terms of uh, attending these events and and what would you recommend must happen if let's we can just go flanders and roubaix if you wish um flanders and roubaix um i think local being somebody that has local knowledge sure there's nothing i mean you know if you go over on your own to one of those events you can see the race you can ride your bike but for example, if you go with the right crowd to like Perry Roubaix, you could see potentially see the race four or five times. Yeah. But yeah. you really need to be on your A game, running to and from you know the side of the road where you'll see the race, back to the vehicle, and then racing to the next spot where you can see it. You need to be with people that really know the roads. Um, I've done it with my van, and you know it was really good in the years where I knew. Or people like Swaniers within the races knew me because I could get I could drive with the other um, team va- team vehicles. So you could get you could get past police barricades oh, for wow. parking for parking for exit entry and exit. Um, so local knowledge is everything. Um, like you know, well now that they do circuits um, in, in the Tour of Flanders, you could be in one spot and see the race a few times. Um, another race that local knowledge is very important is, um, Amstel gold. You definitely want to be on a bike with somebody who lives in that area. So a Dutch person living around Maastricht, that's who you want to be with. Just because they know how to get where they need to go quicker. Yeah. Like Maastricht, I mean, uh, Amstel gold has all these little bike paths that go between like, um, pastures, like, you know, agriculture pastures or behind buildings and little bike paths. So they might jump from roads to bike paths to roads to bike paths. You can recon that. And I've done that where I knew I could get to four spots, but then I've had local guys, you know, say, Hey Marty, you know, cause they're with my group and they're like, you know, Hey, we're, we're going to get one or two more, one or two more viewing spots. But you need to be on your A game with local guys and um, move quickly so you can see the race more than four times. Okay, okay. Uh, Food, nightlife, lodging, anything like that? (laughs) It's my expertise. What do you want to know? No, really, yeah. I mean, Which which country? Yeah, what are you looking for? (laughs) Michelin three-star? Well, you know, uh, let's let's take it on an an average budget. Somebody trying to attend – Back on the original years when Flanders and Roubaix are that are a weekend are a week apart, um, is there a do you stay stay in a particular area? Do you try and stay in one place and go to the races from there? Um, what to, what are the food recommendations and things like that? Ah, I mean, you know, I think it, it, it anything is possible. So it depends yeah. on who you are and what you, what you're looking for. Yeah, depends on what you're looking for. Okay, okay. Um, so, well, tell me what, what you are involved with now. Tell me about the tour company and tell me what you guys are up to. So kind of like my career, I can tell you what I've done, right? So since 2003 until now I've been on, I've, I've, I've designed, led and been on like over, you know, 130, 140 trips with my company. So, you know, somewhere, you know, it averages out to be about 10 per year. There were years where I did more than 10 per year, and now I'm doing fewer. COVID, COVID killed the business for a year. Yeah. I did go back last year and did you know, maybe 30% of the business that I used to do. I will be going back this year. It's also going to be a year with not a lot of business. Um, I don't think Americans are really traveling to Europe yet, but I do have repeat business. I have customers that have been coming to multiple trips. So some of those folks will be coming this year. Um, yeah, so I've done, I mean, I do trips 
I have like 20 products or so, 20 products, meaning trips that I've repeated multiple times throughout Western Europe, predominantly France, Belgium, and Spain, but also Portugal, Belgium, a um, little bit into Switzerland, you know, a little in, in, in Netherlands, but mostly France, Italy, and Spain. They focused around races or they focused around the beauty of the countryside and not necessarily attending that sort of stuff? Right. So I've done speed classics a handful of times, but and then the Tour de France, pretty much every year we've run as many as three trips at a time or three trips to the Tour de France. Now we usually just do one. Um, pretty small company, but we focus on one team, one team of people going to the Tour de France. Um, and, and then, some, well, sometimes two. Like, so I've liked doing Pyrenees and then Alps. So we used we used to go into Paris. So I, I like to stay away from Paris now. So I like to focus on the mountains, either Pyrenees or or the Alps. Um, but um, those are those are that's large large in part. Those are the races. Other than that, um, it's bike culture in beautiful places. So certainly the Alps, certainly the Pyrenees. You know, the last few years at my Trans Pyrenees trip has been just a huge epic thing that people have done. Um, or you know, more food, wine, and bike riding um, trips. Um, but with emphasis on the riding. So um, I still have emphasis on the rides themselves where you're, you are, you're a decent athlete on the bike and that's kind of what you care about. Yeah. But you like to have good food and you like to have, you know, you like to have an adult beverage, but you know, not, not overdoing that part of it, but enjoying it. So what, and I, I don't want to put you on the point on the spot here, but there are there are multiple cycling tour companies out there. What would you say that defines uh, your company, and what would you say stands it apart? Um, I think my experience. So yeah. you know, nine hundred days of racing in Europe, amateur career, professional career, um, languages that I'm comfortable with in all different parts of Western Europe. And then now 130 or 140 trips that I've been on myself leading those cycling vacation tours. Um, that's me. And then I, then I grab, I grab people from France, people that help me are local amateurs within, within those countries or not necessarily like amateur athletes, but you know, local people that assist me when I run my trips. So I think experience, I mean, just experience, um, you know, my business over the years, we've focused on about 80 kilometers per day. So that translates into about a two, like 250 to 300 miles in a week. Okay. So, you know, it's not easy and it's not hard. If you're, if you're a, if you're a competitive athlete, you're not going to lose too much fitness on a trip. Or if you're just a weekend warrior, maybe you can up your game and you can do, you can do the distance and enjoy the trip. Uh, and it is a fully encased I don't know what the word I'm looking for here is inclusive, inclusive. thank you you have, you have the luggage is out in front of the hotel in the morning and it's it's where you need to be at the end of it and all that sort of thing absolutely so oh, yeah. so I you know I tried to model it off of not just the experience that a rider on a pro team has but the experience that a pro you know a pro rider has on one of the best teams in the peloton so oh, you know one of the best organized teams that's that's how I built my company. Um, those, that's what I focus on. Um, and then we get a little loose with, you know, having an adult beverage, you know, at dinner or whatever. But um, try to model it after that experience that a pro rider might have. And 
your your connection, the amount of connections you've got to have to be able to pull stuff like this off is has got to be immense. I I've, I've been on one tr- true cycling based European trip, and uh, there were, as you said, so many locals involved that you know you're on their back roads. They know the route. They know they're not going to take you on some horrible road, you know, full of cars or something along those lines. Yeah, and that's my passion. It was yeah. my passion as a as a as a cyclist, as a professional cyclist, is finding, you know, finding the absolute, almost the longest distance between point A and B so that you circumnavigate anything, any busy roads, for example, or, or, or frankly, just seeking the quietest roads with, you know, some of the scenic features that make that ride special. So that's, that's been a passion of mine about is, is the route finding. Gotta be. Oh, okay. Yeah. I'm going to start putting pennies in a, in a jar so I can, I can attend one of these. I've always wanted to go back and do some of these stuff, especially cycling focused. Going over there is one thing, but going over there and being able to ride these, these beautiful places and and see these, and then have that inside path to know the rides, not basic, you know, guess off of a Strava route or something like that. And then be yeah. able to hit the hotels and the all these wonderful places, and not bike pack your way through it. To, you know, to be able to just ride your bike. <laughs> yeah, I mean, and, and some of those other things you just mentioned, can, you can have a level of success with that. And I think we just raise the bar so that the experience is even superior to what you just mentioned. Like, you download a GPS file, a GPX file, and you go ride a route. You're going to have a level of of level of experience and positive experience. We just certainly raise that bar. Yeah. So. You know, we'll almost guarantee you're going to get even a better experience during your day. Awesome. Just being able to answer like which cafe to go to, which not, which cafe not to go to, what's open, what's closed. You know what we need to try and get to. There's there's so many things to know that local knowledge brings to the table, um, especially within Europe when things are not always open, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. And the language barrier, obviously, for most of us, for most Americans who speak one language. Or cultural nuances, right? You know, let let some of the guys that live there take care of all the cultural nuances so you can just chill out. Yeah, that's cool. So where where can the listener who's just suddenly intrigued, where can they find this and where can they get going and find information about booking? Just use that Google browser and type in my name and bike tours and you'll find it. Okay. That's easy to do. How about you? Yeah, uh, Patrick, it's magic. <laughs> it's, <laughs> you know, like my email, my phone number's there. You can send me a message. Oh, man. It's so, it's so easy. <laughs> it's, that, it's that Google thing. Yeah, okay. I got to go to. Yeah, if you really want to pretend you're old, you put a the in front of it. So you go to the Google and you Google it. Yeah, so I think so. Yeah. And then you hop on your disc, your rim brake bike, and you know, and, and ride your fifty three twenty one, which is cross training. Yep. <laughs> well, Marty, uh, thanks again for coming back on the show. I I, I really love your perspective. I, as a follower of yours on on Facebook, I love seeing the pho- the photography you have from over the years, and and uh, as somebody who was grew up through the Le Monde years and then through the the postal years and things like that it was always that's such a big part of my life and and I think to have that perspective and and have Americans who know understand that and try to teach that to the rest of us is is always such a such a wonderful gift thank you for your time yeah and and thank you for your work and trying to trying to you know teach those that don't know so much of the, the the depths of the sport the history 
the nuances and everything that you know so well. Yeah, and now so we, thank you. And as we said, now we can watch them all on without having to uh, wait for John Tesh's soundtrack to cue us to wake up when we're watching whatever CBS Sports it was. <laughs> you didn't have and to I, watch those. You were there. You didn't have to watch. Talking them. about, <laughs> I was in Europe. <laughs> yeah, good for you. You didn't suffer through it. Hey, I met for... John Tesh, you know, person to person a few times. Really? But I don't, I don't know the TV world that you know. Oh, okay. So, well, you be thankful. <laughs> okay thanks man doesn't it make you want to go over there and take a trip I, and i don't even mean following a race well, although following a race you know in case you guys didn't know paul's been over there a bunch of times and he keeps talking about the fact of you know to get over there and see that perspective if you haven't had a chance to get over there such as myself to get over and see a race it's just got to be wonderful. But to, even to go over there and ride some of the terrain of that those races cover and the beauty to experience, um, I, I, I don't want to become one of those people standing on a soapbox, but I think we all need to get out and, and maybe travel before who knows what happens again and, and to be able to see the world and see some places like that and experiences you can't, can't get away with. Marty, uh, big thanks to Marty Jamison for coming on to the show. Um, great perspective. I had, we had to jump through some hoops to make sure he had enough time to schedule this and busy guy. And I'm so glad to see that his company's still going after the, the horror that was the pandemic. And I know that that can have obviously an incredible blow upon trying to make a living when you're trying to get people all over the place. So there we go. Another episode of the Pack Filler Interviews in the can. If you like what you're hearing, be sure and let us know. Drop us a note, rate us on iTunes, and uh, be sure to like and subscribe. I know I'm supposed to say that, and so I say it, but I don't say it enough, do I? Uh, like the podcast, rate us on iTunes, and, and follow along and tell a friend. We will be coming to you actually tomorrow night. I'm standing here, look, I'm sitting here looking at three empty microphones right now, which will all be filled by, of course, the regular characters on the Pack Filler Podcast, coming to you live Tuesdays, 6 p.m. Pacific, of course, right here and wherever you find your podcasts. Talk to you next time. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.